Thanks for joining us on this week's episode, where we continue to discuss the Best Picture nominees from the 12th Academy Awards. I'm Maddie. And I'm Kelsey. Let's find out if the Oscars got it wrong. Previously on The Oscars Got It Wrong, last week we were also discussing the films of 1939, Mm -hmm. and because there are 10 Best Picture nominees instead of the five we've usually had to deal with, we've invented a new bracket system. It's a tournament. Made it a game. And so we previously decided on five losers that we discussed last week, and this week we will be discussing the five winners that made it through to the final round. Again, to recap, we decided the seeds of each of our pictures by their Rotten Tomatoes score. We broke any Rotten Tomatoes ties based on the number of reviews each film had received. Mm -hmm. Whatever had more reviews got the higher seed. And then our five sets of pairings were Stagecoach, our number one seed, against Goodbye Mr. Chips, our 10 seed, Of Mice and Men, number two, versus Love Affair, number nine, The Wizard of Oz, number three, versus Dark Victory, number eight. Nanachka number four versus Gone with the Wind number seven and Mr. Smith goes to Washington number five versus Wuthering Heights number six. So we're back now to discuss the five that we didn't talk about last time. Yes. The winners that came out of that episode were Stagecoach of Mice and Men, The Wizard of Oz, Gone with the Wind, and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. So I think we've ended up with a fairly good crop of pictures here. Interestingly, only one of our bottom five seeds made it through to this round. So for the most part, the seeding system is kind of working. So this week, we don't have to have any debates. We've got our five decided. We just need to talk about how we felt about each of the pictures. And I think we will return to our usual framing of talking about whether or not We would have been mad about them winning. So let us discuss our first winner, why don't we? It is Stagecoach, our number one seed. Mm -hmm. Right before we get to what it's about, I will say I'm a little surprised that this one made it through based on my thoughts about it before I watched it. Mm -hmm. So now (laughs) I'm excited to, to discuss. So the basic premise of Stagecoach is we have this crew of strangers who all happen to be in this same small old west town and each of them for various reasons has to leave this town and head out on the stagecoach. I don't know if this is clear to everyone but the stagecoach is sort of like a bus. It's like public transit to getting out of town. Yeah it is a carriage drawn by horses but it's the sort of thing where yeah you're hopping a bus. It has a route. It's headed in this direction. It stops at various towns along the way and so all of these different people end up together on the stagecoach traveling through. And this is where I was concerned. Dangerous Apache territory. Agreed. We'll talk about it. <laughs> yeah. They face various obstacles that we will discuss, but a lot of important, interesting things about this. John Ford, people will have heard of, very famous director, directed tons of classic Westerns. You may also know of this kid named John Wayne. Could have heard of him. This film is his like star-making turn. He was not the, the famous celebrity he becomes when they made this. It's another one where we've mentioned our boy, well, we're going to get to talk about this 
three times in this episode. Yes. But our boy Thomas Mitchell. <laughs> the wind in this movie. Gone with the Wind is so I can talk about Thomas Mitchell three times in one episode. I hope that that is like a major point of your structure to talk about Gone with the Wind is that Thomas Mitchell is in it. But Thomas Mitchell actually won the Academy Award for this film. He is delightful. It's an interesting one. This is the first time I think we're going to get to a conversation we'll be having quite a bit about times being different in 1939. Going into this, having only read a description and knowing that it's about, it's a Western about a bunch of people traveling through territory being menaced by a group of Apaches, I was like, this is going to be terrible. (laughs) This is an incredibly racist and awful setup for a film. And yes, it is, to be fair. We have to acknowledge that. (laughs) If we can set aside the super racist context of the film, structurally, it's a great movie, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's such a great setup. A group of strangers all coming in with these various secret lives, and they don't know anything about each other, and they have to rely on each and other. They're and they're sort they're- of a microcosm of society. Like, we have different classes, yes. different, you know, people with different problems. There's a, mm-hmm. a prostitute, and the doctor's a drunk, and then there's a, a gentlewoman, and just like a businessman. Yep. And there's a, yeah, a guy who sells a banker. whiskey, and then... A a sheriff and a banker and then like kind of an outlaw, but like a good guy outlaw who's John Wayne. Well, the prostitute is also a a hooker with a heart of gold, of course. I mean, she might be the origin of that. Honestly. (laughs) Like, she's lovely. (laughs) Um, But yeah, just all of these strangers trapped in this conveyance, all having to rely on each other and like come to agreements about various things that happen. And they're going from place to place through hostile territory, whatever that means to you. I did have a pitch watching this because I love the structure of the movie so much. What if this movie was set in space? (laughs) And it was a group of people who were together for whatever reason, having to go from space station to space station or planet to planet. And they are going through some sort of dangerous alien space territory or Star Wars-y galactic empire Mm -hmm. kind of territory. But something where there could be hostiles. But then they're all still trapped together in this thing. I just love that... You're finding out things about each of them as you go, but also they're having to work together, which is very unnatural for them because it's a group of people that really wouldn't be interacting in any other circumstances. The way it's structured is they have a military escort when they leave their first town because, you know, Geronimo's around. And so the military brings them to the next fort, but... There's supposed to be another regiment of guys there who would take them along to the next town, but they're not. They've already left because there's conflict elsewhere that they're dealing with. Mm-hmm. So they can either press on to their destination or the military is like, we will take you back to where you came from. But a lot of them can't go back because the prostitute and Doc Boone are kind of being like run out of town. Yeah. <laughs> and the rich lady needs to get to her husband, who's one of the soldiers. We don't know why she's so desperate to get to him, but of course it turns out it's because she's going to give birth any day now. <laughs> and so... They decide they're going to press on, but they all have to take a vote on it, which is very interesting, the politics of that. Mm -hmm. There's just very interesting discussions of people disagreeing about what to do and how they resolve these discussions. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed it thoroughly. (laughs) Yeah, I had a similar reaction. So I've always said, like, I don't like Westerns. I think the reality is more that I'm not attracted to watching Westerns because I realize I haven't seen too many of them. It's not a place in a period of history that I find particularly romantic or appealing. But I agree. I I was surprised how much I enjoyed this movie. One thing you didn't mention that I also really enjoyed was the satire around the banker is like, Mm -hmm. it's exactly the same. That banker is a banker today. It's 
insane and upsetting and so good. There's a character who he is the banker of the town. And the reason he's on the stagecoach is he has embezzled a bunch of money from his bank. And so he's running away with it. Yes. But all he does is complain about government oversight and how government shouldn't be in business at all. And businessmen know how to run things. And I should be making the decisions because I'm a businessman. (laughs) He's great. So I I really enjoyed that. And then I do want to talk a little bit about the... So they're going from town to town. They're worried about this attack. And then there is a big action scene, right, where the Apache Mm -hmm. attack does happen. I have long pitched to you, you know, that if they wanted to have like more gen pop categories that might attract more viewers, one thing that I think should be honored is stunt performances and stunt choreography. There are some stunts in this movie that are crazy. Yeah, that chase sequence is very impressive. There are people, I'm sure people have seen them because I feel like these are famous stunts, but the horses are running and there's a stuntman jumping between the different rows of the horses. And then one of the stunt people goes under the carriage as it's going, like... It's awesome. They were putting in work. (laughs) They were really putting in work. I just want to acknowledge the stunt performers in this movie as well. You're absolutely correct. The stunt performers are great, and there's a lot of interesting drama to that sequence. But part of why there's so much interesting drama to the sequence, and I feel like this is not always perfectly achieved, is that there's interesting plot sort of stuff happening Mm -hmm. as the chase sequence is happening. And so it's not just this long shot of a cool thing where these horses are running and stuntmen are jumping around on them. There's this great bit where they've run out of ammunition because none of them are really prepared for this. And it seems like, you know, death is imminent. They're all going to go the gambler (laughs) finds out that he has one bullet left in his gun and he thinks that the honorable thing to do is to put the the rich woman that he likes out of her misery. So there's this shot where she's looking out the window, afraid of what's going to happen. And you see just his hand with the gun in it come into frame, aiming at her head, Mm -hmm. about to fucking kill her. (laughs) And then he gets shot with an arrow and his hand falls out of frame. And then, so you're like, you're like, oh no, this is going to be terrible. Oh God, what happened to him? <laughs> and then, right at that moment, of course, the uh, like American cavalry arrives, right? And and everything is is saved and fine. But I was captivated by that shot of him like about to kill yeah. her, and I was like, oh my, God. Like, what is he doing? <laughs> yeah, if you can put out of your mind the racism, it's a really solid movie. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where if we can, and I guess that's a question of if we can put aside the I think the it's fact a question we'll be asking ourselves a lot in this episode and probably throughout the podcast. If we can have the social side of the conversation and an art side of the conversation, and if you can say, like, I guess we're putting aside the fact that the entire villain of this is this horrifying Apache clan and look at it just on filmmaking merits, I think it's a pretty successful film. So I, I really think everything is saved if we just put it in space. Yeah, I agree. But yeah, I, I liked it way, way more than I expected to. When I saw that it was 100% on Rotten Tomatoes, I was like, well, 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 we'll see about that. Yeah. <laughs> so would you have been mad, though, if it had won Best Picture? I don't think I would have. I would have been fine. Yeah, I could see it. I think we should move along to our next winner of Mice and Men. Mm-hmm. People will potentially be familiar. If you went to high school in the United States, I feel like there's an 80% chance you read this book. I don't know. Yeah. I'm assuming there's some school district that doesn't include Of Mice and Men, but probably few and far between. Yeah, Of Mice and Men, people probably know the broad strokes of it. So the premise is we've got these, I always remember the big brothers, but they're not brothers. Mm -mm. They're two guys, George and Lenny, 
who are just guys who go from job to job. Yeah, it's the Great Depression. They're looking for work. Yes. And part of the reason they're moving from place to place is that Lenny is mentally disabled in some way. Mm -hmm. And he is a lovely guy, but he's very large and strong and often gets himself into trouble because he can't navigate social situations and doesn't know his own strength. Yes. So when they start the film, they are running from one job because Lenny came upon a woman in, you know, who was wearing a pretty red dress and he was really fascinated by the fabric of a red dress and he grabbed onto it and then she got freaked out and started yelling and things escalated and they were no longer welcome there. (laughs) And so the two of them have this relationship where they seem very close. They've known each other a long time and they both dream of one day having their own piece of land and not have to be beholden to all of these various people that they have to work for. Right. Like we know with the Great Depression that a lot of people took advantage of all these people who were so desperate for work. And that's definitely the situation that they're in. So yeah, when we first meet them, they're about to start a new job, but this new farm and obviously there are new bosses, new other workers that they're getting to know. There's the guy that owns the farm, but he hires them and then you don't really see him again. And then his son is very involved in everything. Yeah, he's got a real Napoleon complex. Yes, specifically. (laughs) The son of the owner has this new wife, and he's extremely possessive. We end up in this situation (laughs) where there are a bunch of new puppies on the farm, Mm -hmm. and Lenny really loves animals, and he gets given one of the puppies, and he keeps going to the barn to hang out with the puppy anytime he has any free time. Meanwhile, the woman who lives on the farm also has one of these puppies. Basically, it all builds to a tragic conclusion where the two of them are kind of bonding in the barn. Mm -hmm. And he's talking about how he likes to touch soft things, basically. And she's talking about how soft her hair is. And she invites him to touch her hair. And then he sort of grabs on too strongly. And then she gets freaked out. And then the fact that she's freaked out freaks him out. And he accidentally kills her. George knows that their people are going to find and kill Lenny because he has done this and probably not very nicely. And so as they're all out in this search party looking for Lenny, George finds him and he has taken a gun with him and he basically like tells Lenny to look out over the water and imagine their wonderful farm together. And he kills him. And it's real sad. Yeah, it's a sad story. (laughs) I was fascinated by, I think her name is May, the woman. I liked her a lot. And there was this great, really subtle scene where she's having dinner with her husband and the dad and no one is saying anything. The guys are just like gross and they're like eating this pie in this annoying, gross way. And no one's talking and you feel her isolation and the fact that she's stuck here with these guys. I just was compelled by her. I found Mm. her very interesting. It's not a character you see a lot in stories about this period, I think. I think people are thinking a lot about the guys and Obviously, the Great Depression is rough on everyone. <laughs> it's a very bad situation all around. I, I feel like I've talked way too long, though. What are your thoughts about Of Mice and Men? I mean, I thought it was a good film adaptation. I'll admit, I so like we said, we read Of Mice and Men in high mm-hmm. school. I haven't read it since. It's not a story I particularly love. I find it to be kind of dull, <laughs> honestly. So like sure. film also I found to be a little dull. I'm just it's not a story that grabs me. But I did think the direction throughout this movie was pretty interesting. There's a lot of shots through windows and shots through interesting spaces that I appreciated. So I remember 
the wife character being much worse in the book. I remember really, really hating her. And they did change and soften her for the film. Mm -hmm. There's a part in the book... It's the scene where Lenny is hanging out with Crooks, who's the black laborer on the farm. And in the book, in that scene, she threatens to accuse Crooks of rape, so he'll be lynched. (laughs) And so, like, I was like, oh, yeah, they took that out of the movie. It does put a different spin on the character. It really does. I also, I didn't feel like that actress's performance was very good. Sure. There's, like, a scene early on when she's in the barn with, her husband and she's talking about how he likes to fight people and she's like i'll give him a one and i'll give him a two and she's looking at the camera and i was like stop (laughs) that's hilarious i don't remember that so i i just i didn't find her performance be very good that being said i thought burgess meredith and lon cheney jr were fantastic in this movie so i think it's a really solid adaptation i think it's a faithful adaptation it's just not maybe for me just as a person who doesn't particularly love of mice and men as someone who doesn't love the story i don't yeah. it's maybe the best case scenario of what this story yes. can be for you <laughs> there's interesting stuff about it i will say that i came across the guy who plays crooks his name is lee whipper and he originated the role in the stage play that came before this yes i saw that too yeah and is, he's the only actor that came over from the stage play into the movie and he's also the first African-American to join the Actors' Equity Association, so the, the union for Broadway actors. Mm-hmm. He sounds like he had a really interesting life story. Yes. Um, and he was very good, too. He was great. As you, I liked you him a lot. There's a, we didn't mention it, but there's this interesting scene where George and Lenny and one of the, the farmhands together decide to pool their money to buy this farm Mm -hmm. and so they get so close to achieving their dream before everything goes so so wrong but the two of them stumble into where crooks lives and there's this fascinating scene where crooks is also talking about his own isolation because he lives by himself in a room and the guys come while lenny comes in and is talking about how he must be like lonely to be in the room by himself and crooks is like nobody comes in here like right and i'm not allowed in with all the white people so yeah exactly that was very interesting i liked him a lot i liked crooks Mm -hmm. I felt like one of the weakest scenes for me was the scene when he accidentally kills May. Something about the way that it escalated, I thought, didn't exactly work for me. I mean, part of it is that she invites him to touch her and then immediately freaks out. And so you're like, well, that was kind of a weird situation. Seems like she was already afraid of him and that's why she freaks out. But then it's like, why? Did you ask him to touch your hair? Yeah. (laughs) So just that specifically, I didn't love. Yeah, I wasn't so in love with her performance, but I... I think really I loved that dinner scene. The way that it was shot was fascinating to me. And then I just felt myself considering her circumstances. Yeah. As much as I don't remember the details, I have a very strong sense memory of hating her in the book. I just feel like I hardly remembered anything from the book. And also they didn't include the detail, which I always found I think is the most disturbing part of Of Mice and Men where Curly's wearing gloves because he's bathing his hands in Vaseline all the time. I cut that out of the movie. Maybe that's not Hayes Code appropriate either. (laughs) Well, they're definitely, I saw a mention of them making some Hayes Code changes to the film. But yeah, Burgess Meredith I thought was super charming. I've only really seen Burgess Meredith as an old man. Um, Yeah, I've only really seen him as the trainer in Rocky and the Penguin, so... This was yeah, different. It's definitely a different vibe. And yeah, Lon Chaney Jr. is good and solid adaptation. So again, if you hate the story, your mileage may vary. <laughs> I think it's worth saying, right? Like we said, Wuthering Heights, for me, based on what I read the book, not a faithful adaptation. This, if you love Of Mice and Men, mm-hmm. I think this is going to work gonna for you. You're going to love it. It's going to yeah. work for you. Would you have been mad about it winning Best Picture? Yes. I think given this crop of things, yes. Let's 
talk about the Wizard of Oz. Hey, let's talk about the Wizard of Oz. I guess we do have to walk through the Wizard of Oz, which feels like Though, we shouldn't I mean, have to. Who's listening to this who's never seen the Wizard of Oz? But I do want to say up front, like, you and I have had this conversation a number of times. I watched Casablanca for the first time as an adult, and I told you, like, you get to that last scene in Casablanca, and it's top to bottom iconic lines, and it's the weirdest yeah. experience. It's it's like an out-of-body experience because listening to them, it feels like they're just saying a bunch of cliches. And so yeah. you're like, what what's happening with this script? Like, <laughs> who wrote it this way? And then you're having to, in your head, be like, no, they're cliches because they're from <laughs> right. this movie. But it's just one after the <laughs> other. And I was telling you before we recorded, I don't think I've watched The Wizard of Oz since I was a little kid, but that's this whole movie every single scene you're like oh that thing that's been referenced a million times and into this scene that's been referenced a million times and oh yeah that's from the wizard of oz and uh uh-huh i've seen that everywhere it's like iconic 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 so very briefly because i i really feel like we don't have to do that just based on what we just talked about dorothy gale is a young girl she lives in kansas she has a dog toto who is so cute and Toto's mischievous. He sometimes pesters yeah. this woman who owns half the town. Gulch. Gulch. Miss Gulch. And so Miss Gulch is threatening to have Toto put down. She's a villain. Yeah, she's terrible. And so Dorothy runs away. She runs into a fortune teller who tells her she needs to go back home. She's on her way back home when a twister hits. And everyone's, you know, they let the horses run free. I didn't know that's what you did with horses during a twister, but it makes sense. The horses will take care of themselves. If you trap them in a stable. They're they're in trouble. (laughs) They're they're in trouble. But everyone else has gotten into the storm shelter and she can't get in. So she goes back to the house and she gets hit in the head by a a window that comes out of the frame. And within her experience of, of what's happening, the twister picks up the house and takes her to the land of Oz. And in taking her to the land of Oz, the house drops on the Wicked Witch of the East, killing her. Everyone's super excited that she's dead she's super yep. wicked and dorothy gets her shoes which her sister the wicked be slippers yes her sister the wicked witch of the west wants desperately dorothy of course wants to get home and so she's told in order to get home she has to follow the yellow brick road to the, the, yellow brick road. <laughs> to the wizard of oz and as she goes along her journey she meets and picks up some friends who are all in need of something that the wizard can hopefully give them they have some interactions with the witch along the way as she tries to deter them from getting to the wizard They get to the wizard and the wizard tells them, okay, I'll help you. But first you have to kill the Wicked Witch of the West. Which is dark. Uh, People think of this as a children's movie, but it's very dark. It's pretty dark stuff to tell a a teenager she has to kill a witch. They go and they do sort of by accident kill the Wicked Witch. Mm -hmm. I shouldn't say sort of, definitely by accident. It's an accident when they kill her. They go back to Oz. They find out the wizard is not a great powerful wizard. He's a fraud. But he reveals to them that what they've been looking for is inside their heart all along and the true the true uh, the true journey was friendship or something oh it's great (laughs) and then she finds that she had the power to go home by herself all along and she clicks her heels and says there's no place like home and she she wakes up back in kansas and everyone's there greeting her and it's just you know she's so happy i guess we should say the everyone she met in the world has a correlate the three guys are the three farmhands from her real farm and the wicked witch of the west is miss gulch yes and you were there and you were there and you were there And And she's just happy to be back home with Auntie M and her uncle. Yeah, and she's learned that there's no place like home. And that's the Wizard of Oz. I will say I knew that I would love it and I loved it every bit as much as I thought I would. As you said, like every bit of it is so iconic, but some things have to be mentioned. The Twister, incredible. 
it still looks so good. It's, it's it looks so amazing. good. And and not just the twister and the winds and the storm, but they also do this stylistic thing where once she's in the house and she gets in her dream picked up by the twister, all this stuff is going by her window. Mm-hmm. Looks great. And then she lands in Oz, I guess we should say it starts out in sepia tone. Yeah. The scene where it transitions from the sepia to the color is still so magical. Like it gives you it's chills. It's so good. It does give you chills. The door opens to this vibrant, gorgeous land. The set design. Beautiful. Oh the God. colors are so bold and vivid and beautiful. I learned that they took a week or two picking out the specific tone of yellow for the yellow brick road. It paid off. <laughs> the yellow brick road looks great. Everything in the town is just so bright. It really feels like you've gone to another place. Oh, and I, I skipped right over Somewhere Over the Rainbow, which she sings oh. while she's still in Kansas. Yeah. It's such a beautiful song. It's so beautiful. And in the twister, the house spinning around, like the fully intact house looks yeah, the so model. great. And that's another thing that you've seen done a bunch of times. A lot of this stuff doesn't look realistic, but it looks stylized and intentional in great ways. Absolutely. So it's not like that's what a house would look like in a twister. But that twister looks pretty real. <laughs> the twister looks real as shit. The twister's so good. <laughs> but then, yeah, once you're in Oz... It's so gorgeous. Everything's amazing. What I was struck by rewatching for the first time in many years was the dark political implications of, of this incident. Because she shows up, she's accidentally landed on top of this Wicked Witch of the East, and mm-hmm. she's dead. Obviously, she didn't intend for that. She doesn't know what's going on. But immediately, an entire town of munchkins throws a fucking parade like the, the yeah what was the she doing to that town upon the death of this woman can only tell a story of she was an evil dictator like they were living under a totalitarian regime before this woman died it's like fucking stalin has been killed or something that yeah. just the implications of how they celebrated when this woman died made me think it was really dark before and then that gets built upon later when the wicked witch of the west dies she has all of these what you think are evil monkey guys working for her and then the witch dies and they're like you killed her and dorothy's like i didn't mean to i'm so sorry and they're all like yay thank god she's dead and so you're like oz was a very dark place before dorothy arrived yeah Speaking of iconic things, I had a question which I have not been able to figure out. And I would love if anyone is like an expert on folklore to hear how much of what we think of as a witch is just Margaret Hamilton's performance in this movie. <laughs> like, is she pulling from sources? Yeah. She's green. She has like a witch wart on her face. Yeah. A long chin. No, she's cackling. She's mm-hmm. doing that voice, of course. She's wearing that outfit. What of that yeah. is being pulled from somewhere else? And what of that is just her performance moving forward in yeah, the culture? No is it a situation where like Coca-Cola invented Santa Claus? Did this movie invent what we think of as witches? <laughs> it's a real question I have that I was not able to figure out. But if anyone knows, let me know. Yeah, please do tell us. I was struck by the efficiency of it. She had met the guys which you think of as being the setup to the film and i happened to pause my movie and i was more than half of the way through and i was like we're really fucking motoring (laughs) the movie's almost over and you feel like she's just met the main cast of characters and there's never a scene where you're thinking what's this scene for what are we doing here?" absolutely i just felt like there wasn't really any wasted 
bit. No, there's nothing that you would probably get rid of. The other thing, thinking structurally about this movie that I love, every member of the team has something to do and they wouldn't get out of the sticky situations they're in if she hadn't just made this friend along the way and said like, yeah, come with us. Maybe you can get what you need. Mm -hmm. But I also think they do a really nice job of demonstrating how what they need has been in them the whole time. Oh, yeah. Especially the scarecrow. I mean, that guy's masterminding the whole thing all the way through, even as he thinks he has no brain. Right. And But the Tin Man's always the one who's crying and he's so sensitive. He's very sensitive. <laughs> right. He has the heart. And I think it was most evident when they were in the poppy fields and how they wouldn't have escaped if the scarecrow and the tin man hadn't been able to call out that they needed help and then glinda yeah. you know makes it snow but they still had to be there exactly because if dorothy had been by herself she never would have made it no you know? she would have just fallen asleep and glinda never would have known interestingly i found glinda a, a frustratingly dumbledorean character where you feel like she knows everything and probably could have fixed this whole thing immediately and just waited until she felt like it <laughs> you gotta go on the journey man but i mean was particularly her when she meets Dorothy and is like, yeah, you should probably go to the Emerald City to get that fixed. Just take the yellow brick road. Like then she floats away in a bubble. And you're like, could you not have <laughs> could you not have taken me there? <laughs> Maybe the bubble is only for one. Yeah. It's a one person bubble. Yeah. No, I mean obviously it is all about how the journey is important. I I'm also intrigued by her asking if Dorothy is a good witch or a bad witch, and then immediately being like, only bad witches are ugly. And so then you're sort of like, what's the implication? <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's one of the few things of this movie that does not age well is the conflation of <laughs> ugliness with being evil. Yeah. That's not great, if I'm being honest. But it's not a huge portion of the film. No. So, yeah, I'll say I think what they have pulled off here is an incredible cinematic achievement. I think it is incredibly entertaining for all audiences. I think if I had been around in 1939, I would have been at the theater every weekend (laughs) rewatching it because it just it's not like anything else. No. Of this year, definitely. And it's not possibly like anything else you would have seen (laughs) at the time. I do think it's worth noting the things that went on behind the scenes while they were making this movie were not ideal, a no. lot of them. It's shocking um, no one died. It is shocking. Shocking no one died. I mean, along with the advancements they were trying to make, particularly in makeup technology, many people were harmed. <laughs> so initially, before they even started production of this movie, Buddy Ebsen was supposed to play the Tin Man. And had a terrible allergic reaction to the aluminum paint that they used on him and ended up hospitalized in critical condition. Not great. And then, of course, they bring on the new guy and don't tell him what happened to Buddy Epson. I think he thought he just got fired. Yeah. (laughs) And they, like, made some quick changes to the makeup that he luckily did not have any problems with. But then the Wicked Witch's makeup, too, ended up being flammable. And you might have noticed that there are some pyrotechnics involved in her death scenes and it went okay a couple of times and then they accidentally set her on fire. Yeah. And she ended up in the hospital for about six weeks too. Also, they they were pioneering some interesting prosthetic technology for the makeup of a couple of the guys. Which also still looks great. It looks incredible. I can't fault a single thing that ends up on screen on this film, (laughs) but apparently it did sort of permanently mess up the faces of some of the guys. (laughs) And in addition to Margaret Hamilton, one of her stunt doubles was severely injured when they did the the sort of cloud writing scene. Surrender, Dorothy. That broom blew up and permanently scarred that woman's legs. So there were problems. (laughs) Yes. There were definite 
problems. Also the asbestos. Oh yeah, the the snow from the poppy scene is asbestos. I don't know that I have anything else to say. I love it. The lines are iconic. Again, it's it might be literally every scene that you're like, I've seen that again. I've heard that again. That's a famous saying. That's a famous song. The costumes are iconic. Kids are still dressing up as Dorothy for Halloween. Still, the, yep. Again, I think that's what we think witches look like. And I don't know if it's this movie or something before this movie. No idea. Yeah, I think it's great. Would you have been mad if this had won Best Picture? Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> I would have been quite pleased, I think. How about you? No, I would not have been mad. Uh, okay, I think what we should do is skip over Gone with the Wind, and have a bit of a conversation about Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Okay. I love Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. We didn't say at the beginning of this which of these films we had seen before. For me, just three of them. So Wizard of Oz, Gone with the Wind, and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. But Same three for me. I love this movie. Mr. Smith Goes to Washington is about, like we said, a senator dies from a state with a very strong political machine. And they are in the process of trying to get this piece of graft through buried in a a bill. And so they can't figure out who to appoint. The governor's children end up encouraging him to appoint this boy's leader who's like a nature person, Jefferson Smith. And so they decide, okay, he knows nothing about what's going on. He's super naive. We'll just put him in office for a few months and we can push this graph through and then the actual election will happen. Mm-hmm. And so Jefferson Smith is this very idealistic young man. He loves America. He loves the wilderness. He loves these boys. And he goes to Washington and initially he's just happy to be there, but he starts to become interested in putting together his own bill, which is to build this boys camp in the wilderness of his state that will allow kids from the city to get out into nature and experience people from different backgrounds as well as America in a different way. But unfortunately, this boys camp is right where the the graph folks want to put their dam. And so now we have a conflict, right? He ends up finding out about it through the help of his secretary, who's played by Gene Arthur. And he decides that he will not help the machine. He's offered the opportunity to become part of the political machine. He decides to stand up. He's basically railroaded out of town. He's accused of profiting off of this bill that he's trying to put through. But he won't be run out of town. He won't be made a cynic. He decides to stand up and he ends up turning the other senator who's been working with this the guy running the machine for years and years and years to admit that that's what's been going on. And that's Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. It's a Capra movie. You're going to enjoy it. Thomas Mitchell again is in this Thomas movie Mitchell. and he's fantastic. He plays a, a journalist named Diz. It's uplifting. It's funny in places. Jimmy Stewart does some great physical comedy, which I really enjoy. I love his performance in this film. I love Gene Arthur, who's his aide. I think they have a great relationship. She also has a great relationship with Thomas Mitchell. They are fantastic jimmy stewart's obviously great he's great at everything he's a presence but probably my favorite thing about the movie is the diz and saunders are their names Mm -hmm. their relationship is so great they're these old cynics who work in dc and they know everything about the place and they just understand each other and they get along and they have this fascinating play off of each other because she's in politics and he's a journalist and so you'd think there'd be sort of attention to it but really they're more allies than anything and I just found myself being like, I wish there was a television show about these two and the, what they get up to in DC because I just their chemistry is so good. Yeah. 
I don't think I've seen a ton of Capra. So I've seen It's a Wonderful Life in this movie multiple times. But there are just these little light touches of comedy that I, I just really enjoy throughout this movie. So when the governor is trying to decide who to select, he flips a coin and the, the coin lands on its side next to a newspaper yeah. about Jefferson Smith, right? And then he's like, all right, good enough for me. <laughs> yeah. And there's just like, I don't know, little character moments. So I find it very enjoyable. It hits me in my heartstrings. I love a DC movie. I love looking at DC. It just, it gets to me. I get caught up in it. I am a fan of this movie. I, I like Capra's style. There's a lot that I really love about it. The politics of it are where it, I don't love it as much, if I'm being honest. I feel like it contributes to this romanticized ideal of a filibuster that I spend mostly damaging <laughs> to the country. And I generally, it's kind of a pet peeve of mine when there are movies about just some Joe Schmo from nowhere who doesn't know anything about anything coming into government. He obviously loves the Constitution and he's well suited to try to learn about it, but I just generally like grates my nerves. Hmm. I think, right, it's not that he's like, yeah, I, I could do and he's running, right? He is selected. And I do think to the point of his relationship with Saunders, he immediately is like, you tell me what to do and we'll do it. He's perfectly yeah. willing to rely on her, which I think from a gendered perspective is also pretty interesting. He had no point as oh, like. Oh, for sure. I don't think any of this is th to the detriment of the character of Jeff mm -hmm. Smith. It's just a trope I see a lot that just generally bothers me. Okay. But just the film itself, I also love the... The characters are so great. I love all of the performances. Thomas Mitchell, we've already said a bunch of times. He's so good. He's just so delightful. And the chemistry with him and Saunders. Honestly, I feel like I don't need... By the end, there's this romantic subplot where Saunders realizes she's in love with Jefferson Smith. I don't really need that. I feel like it works just as well, if not better, if it's this cynical political aide who finds herself won over by the the idealism and naivete of this guy. I don't need the part where she's like, and I guess that means I'm in love with him. Because <laughs> then what? Like, I feel like he's going back to freaking Kansas or whatever to run the Boy Scouts this, and she's not coming. This is a question I have. I don't want to interrupt you, but... When you watch this movie, I, I realized for the first time, and I've again, I've seen this movie like half a dozen times, they don't say what state he's from. In your mind, what yeah. state is he from? I mean, I always say Kansas. Okay. I, I don't, not for any reason, just I feel like in my head, that's a middle of the country kind of place. I imagine him being from like Wisconsin or Minnesota. I don't know why. That's oh, just like okay. where he exists in my brain and my conception see, of America. That makes sense. I, I think I see him as being more West for some reason, because I don't know if there's any reason for this, but I think I associate dams with the West. <laughs> like I think part of the fact that they're planning on damming this river somehow has subconsciously contributed. Hmm. Okay, it's not important. It's I just no. I just you're right. It is curious. interesting though that they don't say where he's from. Yeah. they play that very close to the West. When okay, so once he starts his filibuster, and the the political machine is like, oh, we can't let anybody from the home state find out about this, and they do this crazy crackdown because they have a complete control over the entire press of the state yeah. which is like horrifying i was shocked at how dark it got because then the the boys start to publish their own newspaper to tell people what's really going on in dc and they're being physically attacked by all these journalist goons yeah <laughs> like, and the people are running children off the road to keep them from getting the the press out which was like I thought that was such an interesting way to make visual the David versus Goliath of it all, right? Like, yeah. also, they're terrible. They're literal children. Leave those kids alone. <laughs> I know. The fact that they were children made me just like, oh, my God. I think it 
It's interesting what they make the concrete representation of of America is the Lincoln Memorial. That's where he continues to go back to, right? It's not a statue of Washington that he's visiting. It's not that that great statue of Washington that's now in the Smithsonian where he looks like a great god. <laughs> but, that's a great statue. <laughs> statue. Look it up if you guys haven't seen that. It's insane. And it's a hilarious story too about that how that statue is being. But he keeps going back to the Lincoln Memorial. And I thought the other thing that was interesting in this movie was I think – this is one of two movies this year where black people exist in the world. Yeah, they sure do. And so you see black people a few times in this movie. I think DC was still segregated at the time. So you see them, they're porters. There's a black guy who works in the restaurant and that just seems probably realistic. But then on his first trip to the Lincoln Memorial, he sees an older black gentleman who's there and he takes off his cap as he's looking at Lincoln. And he's also there with a grandfather and his kid who are reading out the Gettysburg Address that's etched into the memorial. And then there's also a little black boy who's part of his boy Rangers who he gets lines and he's, you know, a character and he's there. And it feels like it's saying something about intergenerational work of bringing America to this ideal. The movie is not like, oh, we did it. You know, Jefferson is talking about how you have to continue to work for liberty. You have to continue to work to make this dream real, even if it wasn't in the past. Like these ideals are still worth holding on to. And to go from that older Black man in the Lincoln Memorial to this little Black boy who's front and center of this push to get the correct information out there, I think is is really an interesting component of the film. I noticed that as well. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the data component of this movie is it's so male focused. It's so white male focused, but you do get, Mm -hmm. you know, a couple of Black characters and obviously Saunders is there and she has the respect of everyone in the movie. She really does. That's a, a notable thing about this movie. I don't remember there being a scene where Sa- Saunders gets disrespected because she's a woman. I'm very upset Jean Arthur was not nominated for this role. For sure. She's so, so good. i just like to put that out there. But I love Diz and Saunders. Their relationship is so sweet. I'll say... I also came across this delightful John Cassavetes quote about Capra, Please. where he said, maybe there really wasn't an America. It was only Frank Capra. Oh, <laughs> great cast. Well written. Well shot. Tugs at the heartstrings. And that's a quality picture. Mm-hmm. Would you have been mad if it won Best Picture? No. I love this movie. Would you have been mad? No, not generally. Though I think we'll get to, I, I really feel like there's a clear winner. <laughs> so Very good. Okay. So what's left on the list? Gone with the wind. Okay, let's get into this. So I thought a lot about how to talk about this movie over the last couple of weeks. So I guess we should say we watched this movie together for the first time like four years ago. Yeah, something in that range. Pre-pandemic, definitely Mm pre-pandemic. And then I rewatched it within the last couple of weeks. Sort of. Sort of. <laughs> you had it on. I had it on. I was I was doing paperwork. I will confess that I did not rewatch it because I just didn't want to do that to myself. <laughs> yes. So yeah. I, so you are more qualified to speak upon the topic. So yeah, my first point was I felt I had to rewatch this movie because I didn't feel like I remembered it well enough to talk about it, which honestly sure. is a point against it, I will say, just off the bat. So Like we talked about in the last episode, there's a couple of ways to talk about this movie. You can talk about it in a vacuum, not necessarily super worried about the content. An interesting way to view a film, but yes, it's possible. And then also talk about it not in a vacuum and thinking about the content. It raises the question of like, how do we evaluate films from the past that contain objectionable material? Yeah. And 
like I said, I think also in the last episode, part of my discomfort with declaring this film the loser in our bracket against Nanachka, which is a very enjoyable film and does not come with all this baggage by any means, is I feel quite similarly about this film as Raging Bull, which we talked about in our second episode. And so like part of me was giving this movie a pass based on sort of critical consensus and just the technical aspects of the filmmaking themselves. So I think to start, let's talk about the filmmaking and then talk about the context of the film. You know, the costumes are beautiful. The set design yeah. is lush. It's well shot. We talked about Victor Fleming did sort of both this movie and Wizard I, of Oz. That's a whole other story people should get into. <laughs> yeah. This is a man who the studios were shipping around from troubled production to troubled production. <laughs> and each of those movies had at least three directors. Right. People should know. It's, it was it was complicated. MGM was doing a lot. There are some really impressive shots in this movie. There's a shot where they're tending to the wounded and they pull out and there's all these bodies. That overhead shot is really good. That's like one of the few things that most stuck with me four years later yeah. from the movie was that shot. It's really impressive. There's, like we said, some of the special effects are really amazing as well, though the burning of Atlanta, the way they did that was incredible. Okay, so there's some technical aspects at work. Okay, so then the other thing, right, when you're thinking about a film, you can talk about the characters, right? Mm -hmm. Do these characters work? So, you know, I was reading people's views on Scarlett O'Hara I don't find her to be a particularly interesting character, but I think I don't find her compelling in very much the same way I don't find Jake LaMotta compelling. And I am told that is a very interesting character study, one of the greatest character studies I've ever made. And in both cases, I don't find these people <laughs> interesting. They're both terrible people who have pretty straightforward impulses that are harmful. Is that interesting? Not to me, <laughs> but maybe to you. I don't know. Not to me, if you're asking. Right. <laughs> I don't find her particularly compelling, no. Yes. So again, like this is part of my like, okay, so I put Raging Bull through though. I think to be fair, right, Raging Bull is a much shorter movie. And mm -hmm. one of the potential problems with Gone with the Wind is most of the other characters in the movie are pretty one note or bland, which for a three and a half plus hour long movie is crazy. Yeah, not what I would have chosen to do. Yeah. So like <laughs> thinking about this in comparison to something like Judgment at Nuremberg, which is also a pretty lengthy movie, right? That's three plus the hours characters long. Are fascinating. All the characters, so interesting, so nuanced. Yeah. We get all their different perspectives. We get inside their heads. There's space to do it. But instead, <laughs> we were like, Ashley is a guy she's interested in. He's boring. <laughs> yep. Melanie, his wife, is a nice lady. She stays nice through the whole movie. She's really nice. Okay. <laughs> now, we also can talk about Rhett, who I think is an interesting character. I think he is the most interesting character yeah. in the movie. Much like Raging Bull, where I watched and I was like, man, I wish this was a movie about Joe Pesci. I wish Gone with the Wind was a movie about Rhett Butler. I wish this was a movie about Joe Pesci, a statement I've said so many times <laughs> in my life. I don't know if we want to talk a little bit about Rhett Butler here. I mean, I'll say I do think he's the most interesting character. I really think most of what appeals to me about Rhett Butler, though, is just Clark Gable. Mm -hmm. We had a discussion before we watched it about I'd never seen a Clark Gable movie, I don't think. I mean, I might have seen something where he was like a minor character. I never really liked the look of him. <laughs> you didn't, didn't like his mustache. To be a Clark Gable fan, I thought the mustache was obnoxious, and I, that was my main thought about him. 
I found him very charismatic in this movie. He's a super charming actor, understandably so. I guess I should have understood why he was, you know, a famous lead actor, whatever. You're not going to love everybody, though. But I found his particular brand of charm to work in this. Though, I mean, you're right that he's a more interesting character. I still don't find that I really understand him. Like, why he loves her is always a mystery to me. Yeah, but he clearly has, like, stuff going on, and he's living his own life. He has an arc, whether or not you think the arc is good or not, whatever. But he changes as a person Mm -hmm. throughout the movie. Yeah, He's, like, the only one who does. (laughs) Yeah. When we watched it for the first time my takeaway was, oh my God, he's just Han Solo. He's he's literally like a guy who I doesn't- I think you might mean Han Solo is right. <laughs> yeah, <Butler. laughs> I do. He's a guy who doesn't want to be involved. He's, you know, doing his own thing. He's a smuggler. And then he like yeah. gets involved with the rebel cause, which honestly, when I watched this movie, I was like, do I need to be nervous about Star Wars? Are the rebels in Star Wars actually trying to prop something up? But luckily, George Lucas made those prequels for us. So we know that they're on the side of good. We all know, yeah. So yeah, he's, you know, he's, it's possibly that he's just bringing his own charm to it. But I think of all of the characters in the movie, you know, he's off screen doing stuff. He's running blockades and he's hanging out with his prostitute friend and like, he's, you know, making moves and you're like, okay, he's doing stuff stuff going on. But I I mean, his main reason for being in the story is a thing that doesn't really work for me. He meets her and loves her. And and even though she's always obsessed with Ashley for reasons none of us can understand, (laughs) I fully agree that Rhett Butler is the most interesting character in it. I just don't know that that really says that much. (laughs) Yeah, I think, you know, I don't know for me that this movie is operating super well on a character level, because again... I understand that other people, for some reason, find Scarlett O'Hara compelling. I have read their assessments of her, but I truly don't understand it. (laughs) You know, I think you can ask a question about a movie of, is it entertaining throughout? I think we would both say, no, it is very long and there are parts that lag greatly. Yes, hours worth of them. And I mean, even at the time, we did come across reviews contemporaneous reviews of people saying he was overly faithful to the source material. Probably there's a lot of this that could have been cut out. And all of that is still true. I mean, there's, you didn't get into it with the specifics of what's happening in the movie, but she has several marriages. There's a husband in particular that definitely could have just not existed at all. Like that storyline didn't need to happen. It gets repetitive because she's trying to keep her plantation running on her own without the help of the people she would normally have. Who would those people be? So then she keeps doing things like she meets somebody who has some money and then she needs to marry that person because she needs his money. And so she does. And then that person happens to die. And, then, you know, like this happens multiple times. And then even... That's also why she marries Rhett is because he asks and she still can't be with Ashley. Never could be with Ashley. <laughs> and then I think the turn at the end when Rhett is like, I can't handle this anymore. I'm going to leave. But she has somehow realized that she's been in love with Rhett all along is a twist that I don't understand because there is not any point where you really feel like she's made some sort of character growth that would contribute to a realization of this kind i read her character as just wanting everything so as soon as he no longer wants her she wants him but yeah it's like just dumb you're like okay 
I know. I don't find it particularly interesting. So, right. So like a movie can operate on like an entertainment level where you're just like, well, that's a great time. It's a thrill ride. We had a good time. I think we just had this conversation about stagecoach. We absolutely did. Like society implications, quite bad. Entertainment implications. Solid. It's a home run. (laughs) I think on the other hand, right, you can have a movie where, you know, it's really thoughtful and it's asking difficult questions or it's saying something important about the world. Like Judgment at Nuremberg to me was compelling throughout. I don't know if it was like entertaining. That might not be the right word. It's not like an action packed heist movie (laughs) or something. But it doesn't drag, but it is a very much a, a movie with that is just there to say things yes, about the and world. ask questions and pose those yeah. questions to you. But like, what is the takeaway of Gone with the Wind if it is not slavery wasn't so bad and it's sad that the landed gentry had to suffer? That's 1000% the takeaway of the movie. That's just a, yeah, that's a question I would pose to the listener. What it is saying politically, and I think some people might argue that it is not trying to say anything politically, but its very existence is quite clearly saying many political things. And what those things are is... We long for the days of the antebellum South. The people that ran these plantations were actually not that bad. The slaves were fine. The union was evil. The war was unprovoked. The money we had to pay for after the war was destroying all of us. And the, the, that nasty North is really responsible for the destruction of the South. And all of the men who went to fight in the Confederacy were just honorable, nice guys who had to fend off the Northern aggression. Those are all of the things that it's saying. What they cut out of the movie is there's a bit where the guys all have to go to a meeting and defend Scarlet because mm-hmm. she's been attacked or whatever. And they just say that they're going to a political meeting. But in the book, they're explicitly going to a KKK meeting. Yeah, they made some changes to the movie to make it less overtly racist. So in the movie, she's attacked by like a group of Northerners. But in the book, she's attacked by a Black person and they are the clan coming to get revenge. And Selznick did that in response to requests from black people, right? That they like don't have her be attacked by a black person. But I think it's actually mm-hmm. a problem in retrospect because I think it gives certain viewers plausible deniability in a way that if yeah. they had made it as explicit as it was, it would not. 100%. Because what you're left with is the implication of the film is quite clear to many people. When you have a movie where your heroine runs a plantation with slaves on it and all of the slaves are perfectly happy to be there and you know this is exactly the life that they would have chosen if they had other options and you don't have to explicitly show in the movie that you think that all black people are violent rapists and incapable of governing themselves to have that be still being said by the movie right you're right that there is a layer of plausible deniability that is unhelpful yes the paternalistic position of this movie about slavery is is horrible so i would like to get back to that right it's it's one of the points down the line i'm sure i think right you can also ask the question that we do which is what's its impact on filmmaking and i do have that question about this movie i feel like the impact is it led to more epics, right? It met, led to more movies of this length. Which is a net negative in my <laughs> view. <laughs> and it's it's interesting to think about it in comparison to other well-known racist movies that are these watershed moments in film. Like Birth of a Nation was the first full-length feature film. So that's like just a factual statement. It's also obviously horribly racist. The Jazz Singer is the first movie with sound, right? Like, that's just a factual statement. It also has 
blackface running throughout it. But I don't know that you could pinpoint something like that in Gone with the Wind, other than it's just longer than most movies. So I don't even know in terms of its impact on filmmaking that you could have the same discussion that you would have around Birth of a Nation of like, it just is the first feature film. I don't know what to do about it. Like it just is. What is the thing that is undeniable about Gone with the Wind that means that we need to hold it up as a revered icon of film history? That is unclear to me. And again, from our perspective, maybe not a net good. Maybe we should have all just been keeping our movies a little bit shorter, by and large. Who's to say? Keep it snappy, people. (laughs) And I think what this also does, right, is it kind of complicates our use of cultural impact as a barometer for these films, because you end up in a space of like, well, what if there's something that we don't want to continue to perpetuate throughout the culture? But obviously, yeah, lots of things from this movie are referenced all the time. It is embedded in the culture. So How do we extricate ourselves from that? And then is using cultural impact not just full stop something you should do? Is that, you know, do you evaluate films independent of that? Yeah. Is is there a time when we need to be like, yeah, it's culturally relevant, but like in a bad way. Right. Like, (laughs) yeah, it ended up in the culture in different ways, but I guess we just have to stop. Like, I don't want to get rid of that Carol Burnett bit where she made a gown out of those curtains and kept the rot. But would the world be worse if the Carol Burnett bit didn't exist, but also Gone with the Wind didn't exist and fewer people believed that slavery was fine? Yeah, exactly. Carol Burnett would have come up with something else. She was hilarious. Carol Burnett didn't need this, you know? Yeah. It wouldn't have affected Carol Burnett's career. So that's what I want to say about the film, right? I agree with you. It is not this perfect top to bottom. Like it's working on all cylinders. If only it didn't have the context around it. I yeah. I just think it's working on, again, for me, the same cylinders that Raging Bull was and not working on the same cylinder that Raging Bull was. And quite similarly, right? That movie is asking you to sympathize with a wife beater and- a type of misogyny that also runs through our culture, which I would argue is also pretty bad. (laughs) Hey, I'm going to fight you on that. (laughs) Okay. But we can get into the, the context of this. I think, right, part of the problem as well is something that we've talked about a little bit, which is if everyone in our culture agreed that the myth of the lost cause was a myth and we all understood the civil war in sort of the, the same way, this would be Mm -hmm. less of a problem. Oh, that's not the case, right? People don't understand the myth of the lost cause. And I think people also don't understand how purposeful it was as propaganda. People made an effort to embed all these elements of what the Civil War was in a way that was sympathetic to the South in textbooks, in media, throughout our culture. And so like, before we get into, again, more of it, I do, I would like to recommend two books to people. Oh, yay. There's a literature section. (laughs) Yeah. So one book I love, which is sort of a step-by-step breakdown of all of the components of the myth of the lost cause and then a refutation of them is a book called The Myth of the Lost Cause, Why the South Fought Mm -hmm. the Civil War and Why the North Won by Edward H. Bonekemper. It is a great just step-by-step. These are all the points of the myth. This is why it's all (laughs) fake. And I've listened to that book and I like that. But I did find another book, which I 
it sounds very, very interesting. And from what I've read, seems to be a nice companion piece. I will admit I have not quite read this yet, but it's called Causes One Lost and Forgotten, How Hollywood and Popular Art Shape What We Know About the Civil War by a guy named Gary Gallagher, who's a professor at UVA of Civil War history. So like- Love the idea of that. Yeah. I know. I'm looking forward to reading it. So I'll just throw those two resources out there if you are not fully familiar with all of the beats of the myth of the lost cause, because this movie matches up with them like step yes. by step it's it's amazing how much this is in line with the the propaganda of that myth and it's a problem because people believe it <laughs> if no one believed it yeah. anymore it would be fine we could all view this as like oh that's nonsense but look at those costumes <laughs> so that's my long essay and spiel and all my thoughts that's a lot of excellent thoughts i mean i don't really want to quibble with you too much about distinctions between this and Raging Bull because I think you and I have slightly different opinions about Raging Bull, though I don't disagree with you about the societal implications of Raging Bull. I think just for me personally, the character is slightly more interesting than he is to you. But also, I think there's a slight distinction that I won't belabor where you're right that Gone with the Wind is incredibly culturally relevant, but I don't necessarily believe as much that critics are the ones holding it up as like a perfect piece of cinema. I think it's a thing that people have not. I mean, you're going to bring up AFI. I agree with you about (laughs) AFI. But you can find lots more people now writing think pieces about how we were wrong about Gone with the Wind. And as we noticed, people at the time were saying it's not a perfect piece of cinema it's long and it has all these parts that shouldn't be in it well to be fair right i think there are so many movies that uphold the type of raging bull character as a sympathetic figure it's not quite the same like this is an icon of the myth of the lost cause there's almost nothing else like it yes i think you're kind of saying what i'm thinking anyway there's something special about gone with the wind in terms of its effect on our culture in that it is not just an example of these bad beliefs. It is almost the origin <laughs> of the bad yes. beliefs. Not not exactly, but every single terrible lie people have been told about the lost cause is in this movie. Right. <laughs> it's not just one example of a misogynist bad guy that we get all the time and should have less of. Yes, certainly. I agree with you. What else is there to say about Gone with the Wind? A thing worth talking about, I think, is Hattie McDaniel. So Hattie McDaniel plays Mammy in the movie. She was nominated for and won an Academy Award for her performance. I believe the first black person to win an Academy Award. Yes. So there are people who will speak to this movie as being sort of important for like progressive race relations, which Mm -hmm. is a really interesting argument to try to work yourself into. To me, what was most notable about the whole thing is how Hattie McDaniel was treated through the entire process of this, where they had this huge premiere in Georgia of the movie that Hattie McDaniel was not allowed to attend because it was a segregated venue. And then Hattie McDaniel at the Academy Awards, if you'll remember the winner of an Academy Award, was not allowed at the Academy Awards ceremony to sit with the other actors of Gone with the Wind because again, It was a segregated event. I don't understand how we can think of ourselves as being in a place where we should recognize the great work of this woman. (laughs) But let's make sure she's not attending any of the events to promote the film. Like, how is this working in people's minds is fascinating to me. Yeah. Two points around that, right, is also it was Clark Gable who had to demand that they desegregate the set. 
which is like, how are you not going to have the set desegregated when you have black people in the scenes? Right. I think the other issue with the win, right, it's not like it was a watershed moment. And then, oh, we were, you know, nominating black people left and right. And they were winning left and right. right. Another black person doesn't get nominated for a performing role for 10 years. And another black person doesn't win for a performing role for almost 25 years. So, you know, it's an isolated incident progress is a question you could ask. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, certainly. A question you could ask. I don't know, man. Gone with the wind. Again, I have a lot of heartburn about... Especially since I made you take sole responsibility for putting it through to the winner's round. I have a lot of heartburn about feeling anything positive about Gone with the Wind. Um, Well, to be honest, it doesn't sound like you're really saying anything positive about (laughs) Gone the Wind. It feels like you're feeling like you would be a hypocritical person if you did not put it through, given that you had put through Raging Bull. Yes. Although, again, I will say, the costume designers, they did a great job. Sure. But yeah. I I don't think we're leaving this thinking that either of us are arguing anything in favor of Gone with the Wind, really. I'm looking forward to never watching Gone with the Wind again. I can say that with the utmost certainty. It's going to be a great future. (laughs) Although it does go, as I said to you, it does go down easier if you are doing other stuff. Yeah, I can imagine. I guess I don't feel that bad about us leaving it for this episode since it is the winner and it does have, there's so much to be said about it. (laughs) Are you mad that it won? Furious. Yeah, fuck Gone with the Wind. (laughs) Don't feel like it should have been nominated. I don't feel like it should have been made. <laughs> but here we are. Here we are with Gone with the Wind in our five nominees. Okay. We've said our things. I think what could be a fun thing for these new 10 film years is when we do our winners, I think we should say whether or not if we were stuck to the five nominee format, these five we just talked about would be the five we would pick from this year. So what in your mind would be your your five Japanese. Did we miss anything? Did we lose anything in the last round that should be here now? Is there yeah. something else that should have been nominated that wasn't nominated at all? That sort of conversation. Yes. So we can talk about the other the things we generally look at in terms of what should have been potentially nominated. I didn't I didn't watch anything else for this year. Ten movies is a lot of movies, guys. And Ten I just, is a lot, I just haven't guys. seen anything else from 39. Sorry we let you down. <laughs> in terms of cultural impact, right, it's probably Wizard of Oz and Gone with the Wind at the top. Yep, for better or for worse. And then with AFI, there are three of the movies on that list from this year. Gone with the Wind at six, Wizard of Oz at 10, and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington at 26, which is like a pretty high ranking for three films from this year. So, Well, it is, after all, the greatest year in Hollywood history. Too true. But I don't think when we say there's anything that should gone through, it's like, did anything get a bad matchup? And other than my continued heartburn about my Ninochka Gone with the Wind thing, I don't think there's anything I would put through with what we selected from the 10. Well, you know, I already tried to put through Nanashka. I do know that. So, so my five is different, I guess. But I don't feel like we, we are anticipating at some point in the future of this ending up with potentially a matchup between two movies we think. Right. Like if Mr. Smith goes to Washington and had been up against The Wizard of Oz, we would have lost one of them. And I, I would have brought one of those movies back in to the yes. top five. But at this point, I think we're all right. And honestly, I think that the our seeding system with Rotten Tomatoes I think worked out pretty well. I think yeah. those top five movies are the top five movies. And then, you know, Gone with the Wind has its own discussion. <laughs> so. Yes, yes. So what do you think should have won if you had to select one of these movies? Wizard of Oz! Wizard of Oz! There's no question. It's Wizard of Oz! Yeah. <laughs> I just... 
don't understand how people could look at this collection of films and not think that Wizard of Oz is the most unique, singular, amazing work. Even now, watching it feels like a magical experience, but I cannot even imagine what it would have been like to watch this movie in 1939. Yeah, I wonder if, you know, this is an issue we're going to run into, and I know we're going to talk about it in later years, of like, it's a kid's movie, right? It gets no respect. (laughs) So maybe that was the issue of people watching like, oh, yeah, it's a kid's movie, though. It's a fantasy. I just I still I watch it in 2022. And I think what a beautiful film. Everything that ended up on screen looks so good. It looks so good. (laughs) How does it still look so good? It's it's so funny, too, right? Because obviously we live in the age of CGI and you watch things from the 90s where they put the CGI and you're like, oh boy, that was a mistake. But like, yeah, it's this, not age this well. practical stuff from the 30s. Nice. They made the tornado out of like, you know, scrim fabric and wires. Yeah, that tornado is <laughs> incredible, honestly. So good. Yeah, I mean, obviously they could not have understood the cultural impact of this movie. This is an example where like, again, every scene of this movie is iconic. It's yep. bananas. Mm-hmm. And it's enjoyable and it's fun. And, you know, it, it again, is not the movie that's posing the hardest questions, but it has a nice message. It does have a nice message. And there's that interesting undercurrent of like authoritarian dictatorship yeah. <laughs> that is running throughout it that maybe is not apparent to the children, but I found to be pretty noticeable. Pretty, all the way. It is pretty troubling. Mm-hmm. So did the Oscars get it wrong? Thousand percent. Yes. They're never going to live this down. (laughs) Gone with the Wind should not have a Best Picture win. I mean, that is an embarrassment to the face of the the Academy. Yeah. I think, you know, I think you said in a previous episode, part of this exercise is what do we want to hold up in our culture saying, like, this is a thing of great value and this is a thing we should remember. And I don't know where- This is a thing we should forget. I don't know where you draw the line in terms of the content. Like, we talked about Stagecoach has a race problem as well, but like- Mm -hmm. It is beat for beat promoting propaganda (laughs) in a way that I feel like Stagecoach is more passive and sort of similarly to what we just said about Raging Bull, like part of the problem. It's not the one thing that really popularized that view of, you know, Native Americans. So, And honestly, I mean, obviously it is horrible, the depiction of Native Americans. But I feel like if you got rid of it, as I've said, if you change it to space, if you got rid of it, it wouldn't affect the film. The film is not based on the fact that Mm -hmm. Native Americans are savages or something. It's just like they needed a dangerous land to go through and this is what they went with because it was convenient. It's obviously still horrible and racist. The structure of the film and the writing of the film and the characters and the performances all sing. It works. It's just you have to be able to divorce yourself from the ugly reality of all Western films of that period. All right, is it time to go to Jake Gyllenhaal Corner? Let's visit Jake Gyllenhaal Corner. That should bring our spirits up post-long discussion of Gone with the Wind. So we have our general question of who from any of these movies should he have played. But I think an interesting topic for us to discuss is particularly which of the the boys we've been calling them from Wizard of Oz, the Scarecrow, the Tin Man, and the Cowardly Lion, would he have been best as? Has anything come to your mind for this? My instinct, this, I feel like, you know, I always have the tension too of I'm assuming we're pulling the actor out of the role who's in the role to yeah, sub so in Yeah, one that you wouldn't want to lose. And like, I don't want to lose Burt Lars 
Cowardly Lion because I feel like it's such a specific performance that he's doing. Mm-hmm. But I feel like I would put Jake into the scarecrow role. I That's what came to my mind too. Mm-hmm. And I think part of it is I feel like the scarecrow is kind of the showiest of the roles. Mm-hmm. Like he's almost the lead of the three. And you do have that interesting moment at the end where she's saying goodbye to them and she has these moments with the other two. And then she says, I think I'll miss you most of all. Scarecrow. Yeah, that is true. And you're like, they can hear you. That's kind of <laughs> fucked up. But like he's he's working on a lot of levels. He's doing some really great physical comedy. He's very funny, but he also is the most involved of, in the plot of any of yes. them. And he's the one coming up with various schemes and that sort of thing that I think could be fun for him. Mm-hmm. So I'd watch Jake do that. Now, even before we get to our just across the board, Hall, let me pitch you this because we initially said, okay, which of the three would you sub him in for? What if Jake Hall was the Wicked Witch of the West? I mean, he would crush that. <laughs> <laughs> he would absolutely destroy that role. Not again that I want to take Margaret Hamilton out of it, but like... yeah. Well, we can't make take Margaret Hamilton out of it because apparently the entire fabric of society would collapse and she invented the concept of a witch. Know she did, but I'm curious about it. <laughs> but I, I just like the the idea of it, it being a, a male in that dynamic and also him being like, give me those shoes. <laughs> he would be obsessed with the shoes. He would be great. Is there anybody from any of these other movies that springs to mind? I could see him in a Mice and Men. I honestly wouldn't be surprised yeah. if he had been in a stage production of a Mice and Men. That's true. Uh, as George, I assume. I, I don't um, think he's big enough to be a Lenny. No. What else we got going on? I mean, he could be in Stagecoach. Anybody could be in Stagecoach. There's room for everybody. <laughs> yeah, he uh, okay. could be in Stagecoach. But I, I honestly don't mind keeping him in Wizard of Oz as the Scarecrow. Is the well, it's just so fucking fun and i think there's this inherent camp element to wizard of oz that i just think he would enjoy yeah um or again wicked witch like i mean what's campier than jake gyllenhaal as the wicked witch that's fun times i love it that is a a stroke of inspiration on your part okay well we've said a lot we've we've shared a lot of feelings and thoughts i guess first do you see yourself coming back to any of these films obviously we'll be rewatching the wizard of oz at some point in our lives yeah and like i said i love mr smith goes to washington i own it on dvd i will most likely watch that movie again at some point in my life honestly if i met someone and they hadn't seen stagecoach i might be like it's better than you might imagine if you're not into westerns (laughs) 1000% it is. And that's another situation where, you know, if Stagecoach or Mr. Smith Goes to Washington was quote unquote on. Yeah. <laughs> I, I might flip it on on the TV if I'm Absolutely. scrolling around in some situation. I, I enjoyed Of Mice and Men, but it doesn't, it's not like a repeat popcorn picture for me. Yeah. And I will absolutely never be watching Gone with the Wind again. I am, I'm honestly really looking forward to it. I like the knowledge that I won't have to watch that movie again. It's, it's very calming. <laughs> Yeah, what a soothing thought. (laughs) So now we get to our, what have we learned? Again, the Uber mission of this whole project is one, for us to become more literate in Best Picture nominees, but two, to come up with, if we think there is such a thing, an idea of like, what are the qualities of a Best Picture? I mean, do you think, go ahead. I was going to say, I know that you needed, in order to keep yourself, keep yourself honest, you put Gone with the Wind through to this round. Do you think this has taught you that you just shouldn't be considering cultural relevance as much as you have been in the past? That's a very good question. I mean, yeah, I will probably have less heartburn throughout the course of this podcast if I just like 
expressed my true feelings and like didn't try to account for what other people are telling me they are experiencing while watching a film. It makes it, like I said, where do you draw the line in terms of what the content of the picture is? And so like, if I'm not drawing the line based on my own ethical values, it becomes a lot messier to determine where to draw the line because I'm not just listening to my heart, as it were. Listen to your heart. It is tough. Line drawing is always difficult. I really feel like most of us should be able to agree that active propaganda in favor of slavery is on the wrong side of the line. (laughs) You would hope so. You would hope so. What I was going to say is I think, you know, we'll, we'll be grappling throughout this podcast with epics. I think you know, yes. the Academy loves epics. There Again, it's a matter of taste. Some people love epics. It's a matter of attention span. It's a matter of I attention no span. <laughs> so we'll see how that shakes out. I think we mentioned in the episode for 61, like there were a couple of epics that were in the highest grossing picture that weren't nominated in the, the West Side Story year. And I like mentioned you like, oh, we really dodged a bullet. So it'll be also interesting <laughs> to see like how, when epics are nominated over time and how that maybe shifts around. I think to my knowledge, there is precisely one set of movies that could be called epics that I love, which are the Lord of the Rings movies. So we'll we'll track that a little bit, I think. Yeah. And I know you well, don't love Lord of the Rings, but that's... I don't love Lord of the Rings, but we've already discussed it, and I think this could probably be considered an epic. I adore There Will Be Blood. Oh, yeah. That's an epic I like. <laughs> but yeah, generally, not a genre that inherently appeals, appeals to either of us. Yeah. So I think, yeah, worth thinking about... Yeah, we always are grappling with cultural relevance. What do we define that as? And how much are we taking it into account will change as we go along. Absolutely. Another thing that we've been wanting to track, which I will bring up because I had forgotten about this when we first talked about it, which is we mentioned like, do we ever think we'll select a biopic as something that should be best picture? And we have. It's Raging Bull. (laughs) Yeah, we have. Yeah. That's Um, true. Something to consider that we thought of as a thing to track are original ideas versus things that are based on ip yeah so that's an interesting thing to think about for this episode because we certainly have a lot of ip really as we always do obviously gone with the wind we talked a lot about it being based on a novel wuthering heights based on a novel mr Um, smith goes to washington is based on a, a short story i think wizard of oz based on a novel Ooh, is stagecoach I haven't looked that up. That might be based on a story. Goodbye, Mr. Chips is also. That's a novel. One that I know is not is Nanachka because it came from that three sentence (laughs) pitch by Mel Yorlandal. Yeah, he crushed it. I love that pitch. What about Dark Victory and Love Affair? Oh, Stagecoach is an adaptation. Yeah, I mean, a lot of those old Westerns were like somebody wrote a short story or something and then... I mean, it feels like it had to be a story because it's just such a finely crafted story. I think Dark Victory is not based on something. That feels like something someone could come up with for a movie. Yeah, (laughs) definitely. (laughs) And Um, then Love Affair. Yeah, here, I'm reading this. Leo McCary, the director, got tired of directing screwball comedies. Who could ever get tired of such a thing? And his wife suggested they go on a cruising vacation around Europe. When they returned to the U.S., they watched the Statue of Liberty pass. McCary immediately told her his idea about two passengers who fall in love on a cruise and realize they're both obligated to somebody else. So there you go. Hmm. Original idea. created it after a boat trip. So that's, I think, 70% adaptations, 30% original ideas. 
It's so many adaptations. I guess it's funny because I feel like it's a sort of a modern thing that we are all like, does no one have any ideas anymore? (laughs) That's why I brought it up because I feel like that's a complaint you hear now. But I'm also curious. So we have to go back and like, probably make a spreadsheet to keep track of this because we're going to cover so many movies. But I'm Mm -hmm. also curious if that's like a a complaint about highbrow movies or it's actually more a complaint about popcorn flicks that no one has original ideas anymore. Because those have also all become adaptations in a way that I think there did used to be more original idea popcorn flicks. We'll see. We'll see how things shake out. But we're at 73rd split for this this year. I guess there's also the issue of like, we've taken it as a foregone conclusion that original ideas are inherently good and or better. But there are lots of phenomenal movies that are adaptations of things. Like that doesn't necessarily mean. The Wizard of Oz. The Wizard of Oz. In my, yeah. For some reason, what was coming to my head was Jurassic Park. <laughs> I mean, also fair. I can't, right. I can't on wait until we can talk about Spielberg. We haven't done any Spielbergs yet. We haven't been in the in the 90s at all. We haven't. We've been in the 70s. In the 80s. Was, but not, not the right. We just keep missing yeah, it. We were in the 80s. What was he doing in 1989? Steven, get your act together. It's an in-between year for him. We'll get you there. Yeah. We'll get there, well, Steven. in the 90s. There were not in between years. There were multiple masterpiece pictures per year. <laughs> Guys, I can't wait to talk about the Jurassic Park Schindler's List year, but we'll Me get neither. there one day. <laughs> All right. We've we've gone on enough. Yes. I think people are tired of us at this point. We've said everything there is to say. How do you feel? How do you feel about bringing Gone with the Wind through? <laughs> Second round. I feel terrible. <laughs> I'm very tired. I feel bad. I don't feel good. I feel bad and terrible. (laughs) Eh, Well, we made it through. Now you don't have to think about it ever again. It's gone. But that, I think, about does it for us. All right. 1939. What a year. What a world. What a world. What a world. Her yelling what a world as she dies. That that woman knows how to do a death scene. She gets like a full monologue out as she's dying. I mean, it's great. Okay. We're done. We have to stop. We're done. (laughs) So what are we talking about next time? Next time, it is the 55th Academy Awards, or the films of 1982. The list is E.T., The Extraterrestrial, Gandhi, Missing, Tootsie, and The Verdict. We're finally getting to Spielberg. Very exciting. I guess that's a spoiler that we've both seen E.T. before. Well, it's more a spoiler that we've both seen a Spielberg before. That's true. You're right. Maybe we haven't seen it. We're just really excited about Spielberg. Yeah. But we have both seen E.T. before. So. Yeah, that's that's the true spoiler. Have you seen any of these other movies? I have seen Gandhi. I had to watch it in college. It was a rough time. And I believe I've seen <laughs> Tootsie. The, okay. The other two I movies. have not seen any of these other movies. So okay. going in cold. Yeah. Pretty excited. Can't wait to see. But in the meantime. If you have thoughts about the films of 1939 or any of these, you know, you want to give us a preview about 1982, reach out to us at OscarsWrongPod at gmail.com and find us on Twitter and Letterboxd at OscarsWrongPod. If you're enjoying the pod, tell a friend, leave us a review and subscribe. New episodes come out every other Friday at six o'clock Eastern, wherever you get your podcasts.